The reading this morning is taken from Daniel chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. It's on page 885. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Thank you. Morning, everyone. Real privilege to be here uh, with you all this morning. See some uh, old friends and some new ones. And it is genuinely a privilege to to be with you uh, this morning. And getting to know some of the guys more recently, Will and Sophie and Tom and Megan and Caroline and others, and others of you who I've known for a few more long years. But we're just excited about what God's doing in Leatherhead. It feels like we're living in the midst of a lot of answered prayers at the moment. And even though there's some ongoing struggles, other bits and pieces, it's good to celebrate the good that we see, isn't it? In the midst of the the difficulties as well. But it's my privilege to pick up, uh, as Tom said, this series where you've been looking at the book of Daniel, uh, the tagline flourishing uh, in Babylon. And just as, to kind of give a bit of context, a quick little recap Many of you will know that the book of Daniel, the story of Daniel, takes place within the exile of Israel. And you have to kind of try and imagine your way back into what that would have been like for the people of God in this time and just how traumatic, how catastrophic this would have been for them. It would have meant foreign armies coming in, ransacking Jerusalem, burning down the temple, taking away the holy vessels to Babylon, enslaving and capturing and exiling many of the people. Everything that would have given them a sense of identity, security, safety, meaning and purpose was beginning to be lost. This would have been a profoundly chaotic moment. And I think that, as I mentioned in the first of it, that for me is where there's a bit of a connecting point because I don't know about you, but at the moment the world can feel quite chaotic. Do you remember, who's heard of the perma-crisis? Anyone heard that term? This permanent sense of we're in a time of crisis, that we're just going from one crisis to another crisis to another crisis. Sometimes it can feel like the world is spinning out of control just a little bit. And in the midst of all this, the church is certainly not immune to these pressures and these tensions and these struggles. Many are suggesting that she has experienced her own time of crisis, her own time of dislocation, her own time of exile. Others question the appropriateness of this metaphor and this debate over whether or not this is a good thing. But what seems clear is that the church is losing a position of privilege and influence, that we're basically coming and having to come to terms with the fact that we're living in an environment and in a culture that increasingly doesn't share our perspectives, our values, our worldview, and certainly not our faith. This is clear, but what is less clear is how we respond to it. How do we position ourselves well? How do we live faithfully 
in these moments. And I think this is where the stories of Daniel and other heroes of the faith really do help. And so this morning, I want to just walk through Daniel chapter two in three scenes. Scene one, I'm calling the tyrant has a dream. Scene two, Daniel has a dream. And then scene three, the meaning of the dreams. So we start in scene one with King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar is described in the book of Daniel as king of kings. He's the one to whom God has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. It says that his greatness has increased. It reaches to the heavens. His sovereignty extends to the ends of the earth. But we're told that this king, this king has had a dream. We're not told what the content of the dream is at this point, but we are told that he is deeply disturbed by it. Someone once said that when tyrants suffer from bad dreams, that you know God is at work. And so this troubled king, he calls upon kind of the resources of his empire for help. He calls upon the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the wise men to come and help him. And these are basically, these are the kind of the shamans, the priests, the holy people from the conquered kingdoms within his empire. And he gathers them all together and he he asks them for help this powerful monarch humbling himself to ask others for help. And in Daniel chapter two, there's this kind of number of exchanges between the king and the wise men, but at the crux of it, the king demands them. He says, you need to tell me not just the interpretation of the dream, but what the dream was too. Not just the interpretation, but the content. That's how he will know that they are for real. The wise men are all stumped. They can't come up with an answer and they say this, there is no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or wise man. The thing that the king is asking is too difficult and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Powerful people don't like to be told no. They don't like to hear it's not possible, it can't be done. King Nebuchadnezzar certainly is no different. At the end of this scene in verse 12, it says that he flies into this violent rage and he demands that all the wise men in Babylon be put to death. And so this is the end of scene one. And what I want to draw out from this is this idea that the earthly powers are not as powerful and as wise as they think they are. The powers of this age are way more fragile and insecure than they want to acknowledge because true power, true authority lies elsewhere. It didn't take much to shake this mighty king to his core, did it? All it took was one dream and he's racked now with fear. Those who occupy seats of power struggle with insecurity and paranoia and often respond out of this with brutality and oppression. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt when he sees the fruitfulness of the Israelites. Think of Herod around the birth of Christ when he hears that the Messiah has been born. And one of the truths that runs through the book of Daniel is that characters such as Nebuchadnezzar only have what they have because God has permitted them to have it. I was thinking that this week of another scene where Jesus himself is standing before another tyrant, Pilate. What does Pilate say to him? Don't you know that I have the power to either release you or crucify you? What does Jesus say? You'd have no power over me if it hadn't been given to you from above. Jesus knew where true authority and true power lay. The so-called wise men 
of this age don't fare much better. They don't have all the answers and oftentimes they are completely oblivious to the divine working of God in the world. When Paul's writing to the church later in the book of, in Corinth, he says this, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He says there's a different wisdom at play. What you see in the cross is both the wisdom and the power of the God. It's a wisdom not of this age, but of the age to come. So scene two. Daniel has a dream. The last scene ended with the king ordering the death of all the wise men in Babylon and that would have included Daniel, it would have included all his friends. And so Daniel goes to the king and he pleads with him and he says, just give us a bit more time that we might seek God for an answer. So Daniel goes, gathers his friends and together they pray because they know that the answer will not come through any human ingenuity not through their own goodness, not through their own intellect, not through their status or anything like that. It's gonna, if it's going to come, it's going to come as a gift. It's going to come as grace. And so they pray to God for mercy. And in response to this, God gives Daniel a dream. He has a dream of his own. He reveals to Daniel both the dream, the content of the dream and its interpretation. Daniel then moves from a place of prayer into a place of worship. And there's this incredible, it's what the words that we heard earlier that were read out, this incredible dynamic between God and Daniel in this praise. Daniel begins by praising God and he says, you are the one who has all the wisdom and the power. And then he says, thanks him and says, but you've given me wisdom and power. You're the God who knows all the hidden mysteries. You know what's lying in darkness. He says, but you have revealed these things to me. You've revealed the content of the dream. And so there's this profound partnership between God and Daniel and his friends in this moment. Daniel reflects some of the very attributes of God and he is the one that God entrusts with being the messenger of this heavenly revelation to the king. So the truth drawing out from scene two is that God is looking for a people to partner with. Not just individuals, but a people. When crisis hits Daniel, his life is on the line, he gathers his friends together and they pray. When Jesus is facing death, what does he do? He gathers his friends together in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. There's something about that, I think, in this season, to be more intentional about getting together with people who share our faith that we can journey with, that we can kind of come before God, seek God's face together for divine intervention and for some answers in this time. And there's something also about partnership with God. And it's been that way since the very beginning. God, from the very start, is a power-sharing God. He creates the heavens and the earth. And then he creates these creatures called human beings in his image and then in his likeness. And he, he delegates his authority to them. He says, rule over the earth, have dominion, dominion over it on my behalf. And even when that goes wrong, even when humankind rebel, he doesn't give up on that partnership. He calls an Abraham, he calls a Moses, he calls a David, a Joshua, a Samuel, whoever it is, he calls a people who will be faithful to him, who will partner with him, but they all fall short at some point until Jesus comes. And Jesus comes as the true image of God, the true humanity, the faithful partner 
the climax of that story. He shows us what it looks like to live a life in partnership with God. And God is still looking for partners. Everyone gets to contribute to the kingdom work. Every body story can be part of this greater story. It's not about measuring influence. It's not about comparing yourself to somebody else. It's about being faithful with what God has put in your hands. Martin Luther King Jr. said that anybody can be great because anybody can serve. So that takes us to scene three. And in this scene, Daniel, now that he's got the the content and the interpretation of the dream, is brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar asks him, are you able to tell me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? And in answer to this question, Daniel stands in both agreement and disagreement with the wise men that have gone before him. He agrees with them and he says this, no wise men, no enchanter, magician or diviner can show, to the, show the king what the king is asking. But in contrast to them, he comes and he says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has disclosed to Daniel what will happen at the end of days. And then he begins to unpack the dream and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you saw in your dream a great statue and this statue was brilliant, extraordinary, so extraordinary that it terrified you. And the statue had a head of gold, it had a chest and arms of silver, torso and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And then he said he saw a rock This rock was cut out from a mountain and it struck the statue, smashed it to pieces, ground it to dust and so it was blown away by the wind. The stone then grew to become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. And much has been made of this interpretation and what the different elements represent. And it's easy to get lost in in some of those details but... Drawing out some of the main points, there are some things we can be fairly certain of that we can draw from from this dream. Firstly, with the statue, the different elements explicitly are related to different kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are the head of gold, for example. But the different elements also make up one statue. And so the statue is almost representative. It's like this archetypal figure of all earthly kingdoms. And in the description of this great statue, it moves from greater to lesser. So it starts at the head, the most noble part, and it moves down until it reaches the feet. It starts with precious metals of gold and then goes down through silver and bronze and iron, and eventually iron and clay. And so overall, the statue seems to represent these kingdoms that are going to arise, that aren't going to get better and better. They're going to get weaker and weaker and worse and worse. And then in the dream, we have this mysterious stone that's cut out from a mountain. Daniel says that this is the kingdom that God is going to raise up that will crush all other kingdoms and bring them to an end. A guy named Dale Ralph Davis draws out five particular elements about this divine kingdom. Firstly, he says that this kingdom, according to the text, is indestructible. It will never be destroyed. It is final. It won't be left to others. It's overwhelming. It destroys all other kingdoms. It's supernatural. It's a work of God cut out by no human hands. It's paradoxical in that it starts small but becomes this great mountain. From where we stand and where we look back, we can see that this is the kingdom that Jesus brought, that Jesus proclaimed in his own life, words and deeds. 
So slide three. God's kingdom may seem small and weak, but it is unshakable and will outlast all others. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the kingdoms of men were all ultimately crushed, ground down, scattered to the four corners of the earth. And I'm trying to think my way back. If I was living in the midst of an Assyrian, Babylonian, Greek, Persian, Roman empire, they probably all seemed invincible at some point in their heyday, immovable, unshakable, eternal. But they all now find themselves relegated to the scrap heap of history. All the great men of old have passed away and have died. Everything of this age, Paul tells us, is transient and temporary. He says, fix your eyes not on what can be seen, but what can be what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And in contrast to this, the kingdom that Jesus talked about, when he walked the earth and instructed his disciples, he told them these stories, didn't he? He told them these parables, like the parable of the mustard seed. And he said, the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but it grows up to become the biggest tree. Jesus himself and the kingdom that he, kind of agenda and mission that he started, started incredibly small and insignificant in the life and in the eyes of the world. But he said it's going to grow and it's going to continue to grow until it prevails over all other kingdoms. In the book of Revelation, we see this being celebrated There's a moment where an angel blows a trumpet and proclaims loudly, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And so I think one of the things that we can learn, one of the things that we can do well in this time is to nurture a hope and a conviction in the ultimate victory of God over all unjust and oppressive systems and the tyranny and the powers of sin and death and darkness that lie behind them. And then finally, a little postscript at the end of the chapter. Nebuchadnezzar, in response to Daniel coming to him with this interpretation of his dream, he responds with some kind of, some level of faith. He says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, but If you read on through chapters three and four, which you will in the next few weeks, you'll discover that he has got a long way until he gets to the point where he can say this in chapter four. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven for all his works are truth, his ways are justice, and he is able to bring low those who walk in pride. Daniel and his friends at the end, they find themselves promoted now within Babylon. And in order not to compromise their beliefs and to live faithfully in these positions, they're going to need great courage. They're going to need great wisdom. They're going to need great faith because there will be all sorts of complexities and nuances and tensions in those roles. Their highest allegiance, our highest allegiance is to God. But from that place, we are called to love and to serve the people and the places where God has put us. As I said earlier in the first service, we are called to be in Babylon, but not of Babylon. And this hope that we carry in the ultimate victory of God is the source, it is the wellspring of the peace and the wisdom and the hope we need to roll up our sleeves and get involved in the world.
And so just to sum up some key points. First of all, earthly powers often appear to be powerful and in control, but are actually often fragile and weak and will one day all come to an end. Secondly, in contrast to that, the kingdom that Jesus established may seem sometimes small and weak and foolish, but in reality, it is the only one that will be left standing when all others have fallen. And then finally, in our own time of uncertainty, of chaos and of shaking, don't put your hope in these institutions. Don't put your ultimate hope and trust in them. Put it in God. Put it in his kingdom that will remain. Commit to a community of believers who can journey with you, pray with you, seek God with you and find ways with the hope and the love that you carry to love and serve the people and the places where God has placed you. I want to close with these words now from the book of Hebrews that feel quite relevant. It says, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship in reverence and awe. Amen.